This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Naturally, we talk a lot about food on One Woman Kitchen. But something that accompanies any great culinary experience is a wonderful selection of well-matched cocktails and wine. The value of a skilled sommelier cannot be overstated. And Julie Van Zandt, beverage director at Oceans, New York's fabulous new globally inspired seafood restaurant, is one of the best. And she brings her considerable knowledge and expertise literally to the table. Coming up, you'll hear how Julie's background as a dancer inspired a kind of choreography in her work. How the wine world is attracting fabulous women as psalms, masters of wine, and wine buyers. How the interest in orange wine, sake, sherry, and wine from lesser-known places is growing. The power and prestige in creating a 550-bottle wine list. And how it is possible that pregnant women make the best sommeliers, even if they don't drink. So why not grab a glass of your favorite wine, sit back, and enjoy Julie's fabulous story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Julie Van Zandt, I am so happy you're here today. I really was looking forward to this so much because I think my true passion and true love is really wine and maybe even more so than food and cooking. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't separate it. They really go together. But you are our first woman in wine on the show and uh, I'm just so delighted. So Julie Van Zandt, you are the beverage director and the sommelier right now at a wonderful new restaurant in New York called Oceans. So welcome. And tell me a little bit about how you got started. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I'm a fan of yours, and I'm really honored that you asked me to join you today. So thank you very much. When I first moved to New York, Uh, I was actually pursuing a career in dance. Um, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in dance from Ohio University and uh, actually grew up dancing in a professional, semi-professional ballet company in the suburbs of Chicago called Salt Creek Ballet. And so when I moved to New York, I really had ambitions of being a dancer, being an artist, being a choreographer, and was teaching creative movement for children in Brooklyn at Mark Morris Dance School. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) fascinating. But I've always loved food, and I'd always worked in restaurants to pay the rent, and I started bartending Hmm. at a restaurant on the Upper West Side, and I really took to it. I liked the organization. I liked the ability to learn about new products. And I would pick up a bottle off the shelf and study it and look it up and figure out what it was and how to make a drink with it. And So from, you had no training at the time? You just no, got this job not as a bartender? Than, mm-hmm. Not other than just having worked in restaurants. Or being over 21? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something interesting about wine professionals is that most of them have a previous career, previous passion, because in the U.S. you can't really drink until you're 21 years of age. And unless you went to school to study to be a winemaker, then, you know, it's something that sometimes develops later on. And I really liked um, having having a steady job and Mm -hmm. a steady income. And I quickly learned that I didn't necessarily want to keep auditioning and and gigging and living that unbalanced artistic life and wanted something steady. Mm -hmm. So I continued to bartend in New York, and I worked at some really fabulous places. Can you mention a few? 
I'm just wondering, maybe I, I have met you before <laughs> behind some great bar. Well, I worked at Milos oh, sure. on 55th Street, which was amazing to learn about Greek wines and Mediterranean-style seafood. It was an amazing restaurant. The quality of food there was just outstanding. I also worked for Chef Harold Dieterle. Oh, sure. Who was the winner of Top Chef Season 1 and went on to open three different restaurants in the West Village. And I worked for him at the Marrow, which was his third restaurant opening in the West Village. And kind of along the way, I had some really lovely female wine directors and mentors who spoke about wine in a very passionate way that helped me to learn about the wines and where they come from. And they were very creative about the way they spoke about wine. So it was something that I could very easily relate to having an artistic background. Absolutely. So I'm getting the connection, too, now between dance and choreography and systems and creativity and steps of service, right? Mm -hmm. How old were you when you made this transition from dance to bartending? And then I'd like to know what your parents thought about that. (laughs) And did you actually even see a few years down the road that you would actually become this awesome uh, (laughs) beverage director of very important restaurants? I was in my mid-20s, I think, when I realized that I could have a career in this field because I had a dance degree and I had a job that paid the bills, but I didn't necessarily know what I was going to do next. But I realized, you know, that wine and art have this kind of crossover and similarity and aesthetics as that's highly sensory experience, you know, that you are you know, having, you know, physical, emotional, cognitive Mm. reactions to these things. And it's also a highly skilled, trained, you know, field, similarly to dance, where you kind of analyze it and then have a reaction or have a preference or style that you kind of create. So I started to see a lot of similarities and realize that I didn't necessarily need to go back to school or I could just continue my work in this field and continue to grow within it if I dedicated myself to it. Um, I think my parents were surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Uh But also proud that I found something that made me happy other than dance because it doesn't always provide the most stable you know, career. (laughs) Right. So these were two fields that you were equally passionate about, dance and and now um, the wine world. But you're also involved with cocktails and beverages Mm -hmm. and booze and whiskey Mm -hmm. and sake. and, Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about all of that. But for women who are listening to the show, who are also passionate about wine and this industry and You know, in the last decade, there's been so much attention given to cocktails, too. How does someone get started? Is there a way? um, I mean, there is like cooking school for people who want to be chefs. Mm -hmm. But what about being in the wine world? I mean, there are some schools that you can get a master of wine and learn to be a psalm. Mm -hmm. um, But is that very rarefied? Or do you think this is a field open to everyone now? I think it's open to everyone it's interesting because people ask me that question a lot. They ask me where I studied or where I trained. Mm-hmm. And it's a field where I just happen to learn by doing here in New York. There are certainly people who take alternative paths and decide to enroll in WSET courses or take a course at the International Culinary Center where they can get their certified certificate through the Court of Master Sommeliers. But that has, I think, really developed more recently. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, I was literally just bartending and tasting and, you know, asking lots and lots of questions. 
So it was a vocabulary that really drew you in, and it's almost uh, literary, right, and Mm -hmm. about history and culture and all of these things. So you became the sommelier or beverage director at the Marc Hotel, which is a beautiful hotel and had a restaurant owned by Jean-Georges von Gerichten, one of my very favorite chefs. That is a big deal job, Julie. So how did that happen? (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Yeah, it was a... A great experience. So previously to the mark, I was working at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which is at Columbus Circle. And I started there. Also very prestigious. Yes. Wow. You started there. Yes. Mm. Yes. (laughs) I was working with a woman named Annie Terso. And my interview with her, I was, I had so much nerves and I walked away thinking I'm never going to get it. But I, I remember telling her, how much I wanted this, this job, this future for myself. I really, really wanted Mm. to work in wine. And I thought there's no way I'm getting this job, but she called me back for another interview. Mm. And, um, I talked to her a little bit about my cocktail experience because she needed someone on the team who had some creativity and wanted to contribute to the cocktail side. So she hired me and I started, as a sommelier, mostly working in the restaurant Asiat, but also working in banquets and help selecting wines for you know, events and in-room dining. And I loved it. I loved working for <laughs> the Mandarin. Their dedication to hospitality is so high. And I learned so much about anticipating guest needs and, and really mm. providing a great guest experience for people. Um, And wine for so many people is really very intimidating. mm -hmm, So um, mm -hmm. I think a really skillful person in wine, sommelier or waiter or waitress, really needs to take that into account. Um, Yeah, people are really intimidated by it. And this is, we're living in a time where it doesn't need to be that at all. But I have a brother who still makes jokes about Boone's Farm because he's still, (laughs) (laughs) apple wine, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's still on some level uncomfortable with the... um, you know, the farness, the exot- the exoticness of it. Um, but it sounds like you intuitively knew how to approach it with your guests. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, again, something from my artistic background. You know, everything I did in college was view art, watch art, and then learn how to write about it, learn how mm-hmm. to have a reaction and what that meant and translate it into words, which isn't an easy thing to do, but I had that training. So being able to talk about, you know, the way the wine smells and the way it looks and the way it falls on your palate and the structure is so important. The way it dances in your mouth, right, (laughs) I mean, the energy of the wine is so important, especially when you're talking about having wine with food. So I got to you know, really sink my teeth into just being a sommelier and, and opening bottles and tasting lots of wine when I was working at the Mandarin. And then my boss moved on. So Annie Terso decided to leave. She had been with the company for a long time. She actually created the program at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Which they were very was, famous for it, yes. Yeah. And she, I was so lucky to have learned from her. She is just always on the mark. She, I feel like she always did the right thing and really mm. trained me to have integrity and, and do things the right way and, and treat people the right way in the industry. And she taught me a lot about the business side of running a beverage program. So she decided to move on and I was terrified. <laughs> um, did she stay in the business? Uh, she did. Okay. Yeah. She moved over to distribution, but she and we are still we still work together which is great that we can you know still have a relationship she had confidence in me that i could take over for her or, or at least hold down the fort until that person came along so i became the interim beverage wine director at the mandarin for a while which was an amazing experience buying wine and receiving wine and making a lot of suggestions and placements, working with wholesalers and learning the kind of back end and business side of wine 
which really helped prepare me for my position at the mark. So in addition to hands-on work experience and also having the ability to taste all these wines and to be in this kind of exciting milieu, uh, did you do a lot of reading? And did you have any uh, wine writers that you really loved reading their work? Absolutely. I think it's important for for everyone to continue to learn and to continue to read. So I'm always reading. But I think for anyone who's really interested in getting a start or building a foundation, they should 100% read The Wine Bible by Karen McNeil. I think it's a great place to begin your wine education, and I still reference it. More countries are making better wine, and then also with climate change, which we can talk about too, mm-hmm. um, wine-growing regions are changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Karen McNeil's book, The Wine Bible, is a great example. Are you a Jancis Robinson fan? Absolutely. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love, I've been fortunate enough to hear her speak on some panels, and there's some phrasing and descriptive language that she uses about oh, wine. she's that a brilliant I've, Brit. Yeah. <laughs> they write very differently. Yeah, that I've kind of pocketed and I, you know, I've learned a lot from her. So I use sometimes her phrasing and her descriptions, you know. I'm sure she when would I'm love to hear that. Wine. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, just for fun, Julie, in your spare time, it's really cool to read British restaurant reviews because they, um, the language that they use, it's just like a whole another sensibility, and it's a lot of fun. And they're usually funnier than than ours, (laughs) more uh, lighthearted. So um, I I remember my first taste of a wine that I can't get out of my head. And I'm going to ask you for your version of this. But when I was 24 years old, um, and I was the chef to the mayor of New York at Koch, someone invited me to their house, and I think wanted to impress me, and had me try a glass of something that was very leggy. Uh, So it was viscous and I guess had a lot of glycerol in it. It was a gorgeous color, kind of a yellow I had never seen before. And it was cold. And this man told me to try it. And I did. And he said, what did you think? And I said, oh, my God, it tasted like liquid gold. (laughs) And in fact, it was in 1937, Yekem. Wow. So, So it's that's a sweet dessert wine, and most people don't get a chance to try that. But that is a very outstanding memory for me. Mm -hmm. How about for you? I was working at the Marrow, so Harold Dieterle's restaurant, and I was working with a woman named Jill Roberts. And uh, she'd worked for Moet and Hennessy for a long time and had a great history in in restaurants as well. And she created this wine list that was mostly composed of a lot of German and Austrian whites and Italian reds, because that was chef's heritage. So it was ah. really kind of based on his family tree. And it was a dream of a of a wine list to work with. And we she'd opened this bottle for a tasting, and we were gonna then pour it out by the glass, offer it to guests, because it was a specific wine that we didn't normally offer by the glass, but it was a bottle of Vols, Eiler Coupe. Spatlese Riesling mm-hmm. from the Mosul, um, from a tributary of the Mosul called the Sar. And it was a little sweet and a little fruity, but also just had this, you know, lightning energy to it. Ooh, that's a great description. <laughs> which, you know, just makes the sides of your cheeks tingle and mm. your mouth water. And it, opened my eyes to a whole kind of new category of wines, being able to play with all of these Rieslings um, that aren't necessarily sweet, but they make your mouth water and they're great with food and fatty foods like pork and, you know, mm. rich braised meats. Um, absolutely delicious. Thank you. That sounds remarkable. <laughs> I don't know very much about Rieslings, but it has been said, and I'm wondering if you agree, do you think that women have better palates than men? Hmm. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> um, I've also heard that, or maybe different palettes, yeah, right? respond to different qualities. Right. Your your sense memory kind of takes over when you're when you're smelling wine and tasting wine, and 
it's something that requires practice. You know, it mm. becomes a habitual practice when you smell Pinot Noir and you smell Pinot Noir again and then you smell it again and you start to identify certain markers um, for you. This smells like this. This tastes like this to me. And you then identify the wine for yourself um, and you develop those sense memories. But I have heard that women are maybe a little more apt at that than men are. I've also <laughs> heard from some of my female colleagues and peers when they're pregnant, their senses are heightened and it actually makes them much better sommeliers. Um, mm. Of course, they can't, you know, they don't taste the wine, but they can smell it. And really, when you're smelling wine, that's where all the the nuance and character comes through. When you taste it, you're really just confirming what you smelled. You can honestly learn a lot more about a wine by the way it smells than the way it tastes. So I've heard that in that period of time, sometimes, you know, women, as female sommeliers can kind of get a jump ahead because they sense more in the wine than they, they had previously. That is fascinating. <laughs> and again, we want to be really clear that the, uh, these women sommeliers who are pregnant are not drinking the Mm-mm. wine, but their Mm-mm. senses are heightened Correct. and paying more <laughs> attention to other qualities. Of course, smell is 80 or even 90% of taste is mm-hmm. the new science is telling us. And you even by looking at a wine, you know, you can learn so much about it. So when we come back, I want to hear really about your childhood and where you grew up and what you ate and what you were smelling back then when you were a kid. Here's a cooking tip. I mean, a wine tip to share from my guest, Julie Van Zandt. One of my favorite regions right now is a region in France called the Jura, J-U-R-A. It's east of Burgundy, kind of right sandwiched in between Burgundy and Switzerland. And They make a variety of different kinds of wines, but they have lovely Chardonnay, and it has so much value. The prices are a lot lower than Burgundy, but the quality is very high. Um, And there's a few on the list that that I use a lot, and um, people just love them. They're great with seafood. They're great with chicken or meat dishes. They go with a lot of different kinds of food, and they're very accessible. So look for the Jura next time you're in a wine store. From Julie's Kitchen to yours... Give it a try and pass it along. So, Julie, since you mentioned smell and taste, I'm really curious about your your childhood. Is there a lot of food and cooking happening in your house? Do you have any um, very particular smell or taste memories? I grew up in a very Midwestern household. So, you know, there were a lot of frozen fish fillets in the freezer and (laughs) well they smell good yeah (laughs) and um a lot of casseroles you know my mom would make a turkey tetrazzini that my dad loved and she was more uh, into following recipes and she had a recipe book with note cards that were from you know her mother or her sisters and we'd you know pull them out or look them up where's that recipe and do you remember the book? Was it a specific cookbook that you remember? It was just a little box. Oh, a box. <laughs> that had a recipe box. Oh. I think that had grapes on it, actually, <laughs> that you would flip up and there were just note cards and it was alpha- alphabetical. Mm-hmm. There were little tabs there. And I learned to find things in my kitchen and then determine what I could make from them. Mm-hmm. So with pantry staples, with eggs and sugar and flour and such. So you were creative. You would experiment and put things together. Like like a cocktail, but this was more baking. Definitely. We'd follow a recipe. You know, my sisters and I would whip up meringues or we'd make, you know, snickerdoodles or something that was that you could really make with, you know, pantry staples. Wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Julie, we're going to have fun right now. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but here we go. Yeah. What would you recommend serving with your mother's beloved was it chicken tetrazzini or yeah, turkey? Yeah, tur- turkey tetrazzini. Okay. What are, we, what are we drinking with Ooh, that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, maybe a nice, like, roan white. You a know? roan white? Yeah, mm-hmm. like something with maybe a little Viognier or Roussan Marsan blended that has kind of medium weight and a little bit of richness to pair with, like, the cheesiness of and the, you know, 
turkey flavor. Yeah. Fantastic. And if we were to do a red, I very often love to play with, with this idea that white Whites and reds can go equally well, but for mm-hmm. very, very different reasons. Mm-hmm. So if I pressed you for red wine to go with my turkey tetrazzini, what would it be? Hmm. I think maybe maybe even something from Spain, like a, like a Rioja, a nice vibrant Rioja might be nice. Something – I always think of Rioja as being a very soothing wine, um, and there's a homey feel about that dish and, and also about that wine, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. And here's a hard one. What would you serve with a snickerdoodle? Oh, <laughs> and what is your rule of thumb for pairing wines with desserts? Yeah. Sweet. Um, you have to find a way either to match the level of sweetness or find something that kind of cuts through the richness. Um, but most of the time with a dessert, I like to choose a sweet wine. Wine is bottled poetry. And on your beautiful wine-listed oceans, there's also a quote that I want to ask you about. Um, And then we'll talk about your development of your 550 bottle wine list at Oceans. But you chose a quote that wine is sunlight held together by water. That's beautiful, too. (laughs) Okay, so you were at the Mandarin, you were at the Mark, and now you're at this brand new restaurant that opened in New York uh, just, I think, a month or two ago. I had the pleasure of eating dinner there the other night. It was so good. And I do want to say that my husband, who doesn't do much on the the web, uh, put a picture of the turbo that he had. Mm Mm-hmm. And I also checked out the pronunciation. So in, in England, they say turbot. Mm-hmm. And in America, they say turbo. And I really believe, and I think this is the part of the mandate of Ocean's Restaurant, is that the turbo had just been delivered 10 <laughs> minutes before. <laughs> and on the spot, the chef, I think it was a big one. So he divided it into four. So the portion was enormous. Mm-hmm. And Michael uh, took a picture of it. And put it on his LinkedIn, and within 24 hours, he got almost 500 likes oh. for this piece oh. of turbot. Thank you. That That's was perfectly amazing. grilled with a piece, you know, a grilled lemon. Um, and I had a really inspired scallop dish. So tell me a little bit more about the restaurant. It's a, a group that started in Vancouver, and this was their first U.S. Uh, presence. Um, and it's seafood mostly, and also very Asian. You have a sushi bar. Yeah. So, so how did you go about making this wine list? Yeah. I mean, the wine list is certainly designed around the food and our menu takes a seasonal approach to seafood preparations and we source from all over the world. So we have fish from the Mediterranean, from Japan, some locally sourced seafood and chef Andy Kitko has really designed the menu to make sure the guests can have that fresh seafood however they'd like. So we can do it simply grilled for you with some lemon and olive oil, or the sushi team will sashimi the entire fish and plate it up for you raw. Mm. He also creates some composed dishes uh, with different items. So I wanted to make sure that the wine list mirrored that and gave the guest an ability to choose a wine that pairs with their specific fish and preparation. So we do have a sake program, which is really fun for me. Um, the, we have wines from all over the world. I started tasting a lot of wines from kind of coastal regions. So wines from Corsica, the Canary mm. Islands, or uh, that was really fun for me. But at the end of the day, the wine list is really kind of based in the classics. So a lot of wines from France, a lot of domestic selections. Um, but we want the list to be approachable and have variety so the guests can really choose something that pairs well with with what they're having. And do most people have you come over to their table and ask you for suggestions? Yes, absolutely. Um, It's a mix. You know, there are certain guests who walk in knowing exactly what they want and others that are more open to suggestions. So we're always there for them to help them, you know, 
Um, and very often there's a group of people. There could be four or six. Oh, and, absolutely. And everyone's ordering something else. So do you have a little bit of a rule of thumb if you need to uh, select a bottle that will go with everyone? Yeah, we do that a lot because we host a lot of events at Oceans, even though we've only been open for two months now. We have some really amazing event spaces. So we have a lot of group dining. I've created a list, a go-to list of wines that pair well with a lot of the food on our menu, you know, and again, they're mostly classic, classic varieties from classic regions. So, you know, white, you can't go wrong with white burgundy, you know, <laughs> if you can afford it, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, yes, um, we have a kind of a list of things that, that pair well with a lot of the food and, and certainly are by the glass wines are, are go-tos for a lot of a lot of the food on the menu. Yeah, I really appreciated the range. You know, once upon a time, you really couldn't do this, but there are so many suppliers now, and wine is available from so many countries. But I mm. had a glass also I tasted of a Greek white wine, which was absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, wines by the glass in New York, especially, and probably everywhere else, are are pricey. You know, once upon a time, you really could get a glass of wine for 7 or $8. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder, how do Europeans feel when they come here? Their wines are so reasonable. And they come here and they see a price of a glass of wine that for them would be the whole bottle and not just a glass. Mm-hmm. But I feel that you have a beautiful range. You can get a lovely glass of wine for, let's say, even $13. Mm-hmm. And um, But I took a good look at your wine list, which is massive, um, but so beautifully done. And if I can use the word uh, choreographed Mm -hmm. um, to bring it back to your other specialty, um, how do you go about doing it in terms of, obviously, there's country. Very often, it's least expensive wine to most expensive. Mm -hmm. But I think there's much more creativity and originality on your list. Mm -hmm. So what was your kind of principle? or? Well, I knew that the wine list was global. So I kind of started with an outline of these are the areas of the world in which I want representation from. And, you know, buying wine and creating a wine program or beverage program, you're so reliant on your community. So I, you know, went to the people who I have relationships with and I've bought wine from over the years and we sat down and we they pulled wines and we sat and we tasted things and you know I started earmarking things for the list and you know one one meeting after the next after the next you know the wine list kind of starts to come together Mm -hmm. and it's always moving and it's always changing because wine is a consumable good that's crafted so you know things go out of stock or they move on to the next vintage. So it's a constantly changing kind of ebb and flow at all times <laughs> that you have to kind of keep up with and try to anticipate so you, you know, have things available for your guests. So you said you had many classic things on the wine list because you have to. Mm-hmm. But are there some trends? Are people trying different things and new things? I know you said you have a sake program, which, of course, goes really beautifully with your um you know, raw fish dishes and tempura, whatever it is that you do. Um, But you and I chatted briefly because I came back from Spain and I was drinking a lot of sherry. And I also thought that sherry had great possibilities for uh, pairing with uh, Japanese raw and cooked food. Um, And I think you had a a similar feeling to that. Mm -hmm. So are there other other things on the horizon? Yes, I think I think absolutely. Sherry is a really good example of it, and I actually just had um, someone taste some Amontillado with our um, Alaskan black cod dish last night, and it was out of this world. Mm. Really delicious. Um, <laughs> of course, natural wines are coming more to the forefront. Oh yes, right, natural um, organic. And mm. I do have some on the list. Um, that term can be interpreted in many different ways. Um, but I have had some guests just recently ask me for that. Um, and there's a producer in Austria. His name is Klaus Pressinger, um, who I love his wines. They're, you know, um, very sound and very solid, but uh, have great energy and, and vibrancy to them. And I have a couple of his wines. I have a, a fun rosé and I have a sparkling wine and, and a kind of like a field blend white on the list that are just mm. really delicious. And Did you say field blend? 
Yeah, just a it's mix. Lovely. A mix of <laughs> again poetry. Yeah, <laughs> a mix of you know white grape varieties from Austria, and um, the wines just kind of bubble and you know. Well, you know what, Julie, you kind of bubbled too. <laughs> so when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the cocktails you've invented in the past, uh, some more trends, and uh, just to find out what's happening in the future. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Julie, do you ever think that you need or want to get in a master of psalm or take classes? Or it's, it's really not important for you at this point. It's not really that important. You could be teaching these classes. Yes. Right? Well, yes. And, you know, I actually really love the classroom environment. Um I love being able to sit down with a group of people and have a conversation. And it's something that I did a lot with my art background, creating movement and choreography and then sitting and watching it and talking about what worked and what didn't work that was successful. Or, you know, I really heard that or felt like it communicated something to me. Um, And you can have those same conversations about wine and about beverage and food certainly as well. You know, what worked, what didn't work? Was it successful? And not necessarily assigning value or saying this is good, this is bad, but really trying to understand the wine or the dish for what it is and why it is the way it is. So that's something that's always been super important to me. And I love sitting down with a group of people and having those conversations. It's just that, you know, unfortunately, I don't have the time to, you know, dedicate to earning a certificate of that caliber at this time. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll decide it's something that's really important to me. But But you're really living it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I don't want to sit in a room with a note card. I want to be, you know, with other people having a, having a dialogue and having a conversation. So. In addition to managing this huge beverage program and creating the wine list, a big part of what you do is training, training of the wait staff, uh, maybe even you know, imparting a lot of information to the kitchen team and, and chefs about about wine. But what are some of the challenges that you face? I think just having having the time when you are running a restaurant to be, you know, to get everything done. And um, because really it's it's all about service and making service happen. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into making sure that everyone of your team is is ready to go. And bef- during the opening of Oceans, we had our staff on board for maybe a good six weeks plus, just sitting and being able to taste all the food and taste all the wine. But you're constantly having new people come in, and it's hard to get and sit down and find time to do that training one-on-one um, because wine can be overwhelming to some people right. and, and confusing. Julie, can you, uh, without being that specific about where this happened, but can you give us some examples of what happens when very snobby or pretentious mm. uh, customers come in and maybe make certain kinds of demands or really maybe don't exactly know what they're talking about, but they mm-hmm. throw a lot of money at it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any s- stories to share? Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> Um, I think we'll start all over again. (laughs) I had someone once order a very expensive bottle of Bordeaux that was, I believe, a first growth. It was fairly young, so something that hadn't spent a lot of time aging. And for anyone who knows knows Bordeaux... 82 is the year. Right. (laughs) Sure is. Um, you know, it benefits from some time spent in bottle aging because the grape varieties are tannic and can be sometimes harsh on the palate when the wines are very young. And nevertheless, this guest decided to order said bottle of wine. And, you know, we opened it and we were very excited, you know, like to get to open this wine and try it and, and serve it to this guest. Needed and to be decanted. 
certainly needed to be decanted. Absolutely. Because that can help incorporate some oxygen and it actually can speed up the aging process a little bit uh, in a wine. And if you give it a kind of a good slosh into the decanter and get it opening up, then it can definitely benefit uh, the wine and bring out some more nuance characters. But the guest tasted it. Nothing wrong with the wine. Mm. But he didn't like where it was. Mm. He didn't like how it was drinking. So he sent it back. Oh. How do you handle that? Well, Because we're talking about hundreds of dollars. Correct. Maybe thousands of dollars. Thousands in this case. Oh, dear. Yes. And it's a cost for the restaurant as well to invest in in something like that. Because the thought is, is that you'll one day sell it. Um, unfortunately, those situations, you have to kind of make the best of them. Mm. You, you obviously can't, you know, charge someone for something that they didn't consume mm-hmm. or didn't mm-hmm. like. But you would imagine that someone who orders a wine of that caliber has an idea of what they're getting themselves into. Um, so I think in that case, we just ended up, you know, tasting our staff on it and using it as a training opportunity. But it's unfortunate when things like that happen. Do you feel like he was coming from a place of integrity or was he showing off a little bit to his guests? Showing off a little bit, certainly, mm-hmm. which is cer- definitely something that lends itself to expensive wines. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, you have to just take it with a grain of salt because it's the business of hospitality. Um but yes, there are definitely a, a group of people who like to kind of boast and brag and, and throw money around at these at these big, big wines mm. and say how great they are. And they are great, but, you so know. So these are the exceptions. And I think most people really are not like that. Correct. They really just want to have a great... Uh, a great bottle of wine with their with their dinner. Correct. So a uh, couple quick questions. Tell me about corked wines. Mm-hmm. Tell me about orange wines and how you feel about the potential tariffs of wines mm-hmm. and how that's going to change life in restaurants mm-hmm. and for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so cork comes from a tree um, and there is a taint that can grow inside the cork and it has a an, an infected cork, and it has um, an impact on the wine that makes it taste kind of like mushroom or like I smell wet cardboard. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of times for me in a corked wine, the fruit quality is completely gone. It just smells flat and, flat and there's no fruit. So for me, it's very easy to sense that. Um and winemakers are certainly doing things to combat that. They're using um, cork called DM, which is they use actual natural cork, um, but it is uh, free of any taint and it kind of guarantees that you won't have any corked. And then, of course, there's other closing, you know, uh, mechanisms like screw caps or Selvin. Corks. Which takes away a little bit of the sex appeal of wine, sure but does. It, it does cut down on the that problem. Yeah. But a person shouldn't be uncomfortable if they taste something and it has that kind of corked quality. That's permissible to send it back. 100%. Yes. And nor would we want you to drink that. Right. <laughs> we would not want you to have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me about orange wines, because I know they are a little bit of a, a trend. Yeah, orange, wines, orange mm-hmm. wines are great, and they're very playful. And we have a few on our wine list. Um, so they're actually white wines that have um, some skin contact. And um, they're, they're great because they have freshness, but they still develop. They develop a little bit more texture on the palate, which can um, be really fun and interesting with food. And the color really comes from the white wine skins, mm-hmm. the white grapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah, because a a red wine as it ages actually gets lighter in color and a white wine actually gets darker in color, which is something that people don't always realize about wines. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And now to the tariffs. Mm. I don't know when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen, but tell me your prediction of how the wine industry will combat it. It's very scary um, because if these 100% tariffs on European wines um, start, um, then businesses in the U.S. are going to 
suffer ultimately because there's plenty of very small importers who are only bringing in wines from France and Spain and Portugal. And there are these lovely little distributors who bring in wines of great value. They may not have Bordeaux first growth, but they're bringing wines in that are affordable for people and make wine a very accessible. And what's going to happen is wines are going to get more expensive. I think people would potentially look towards buying more domestic wines. But if that happens, then the demand for those wines are going to go up as well as the prices for domestic wines. And possibly the quality suffers too. Correct. Because it becomes um, something that's, um, you know, created faster. It's produced versus crafted. And if there's... Oh, I love that distinction. Thank you. If there's Mm -hmm. such a high demand for the wines and, you know, Europe will seek other markets for their wines. They're going to start selling more wine to places like China and Japan who have very sophisticated wine tastes and really love French wines just like we do in the U.S. <laughs> and um, I think it's going to cost cost us jobs, mm. both on the distribution level and, and also in restaurants. It's going to make it harder for people to you know, have access to wines because the pricing is, is just going to be out of their reach. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So we can just hope that doesn't happen. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So very often my guests come with a legacy recipe. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking food today. We're talking about wine and cocktails. So Julie, do you have a recipe, a, a, maybe a cocktail that you want to be mm-hmm. known for, mm-hmm. your legacy cocktail? So it's something that actually comes from the Top Table group and one of our restaurants in Vancouver called Blue Water Cafe. And it's a cocktail that we've adopted at Oceans in New York because we just think it's so vibrant and delicious. Um, And it's called the Jacob's Ladder. Hmm. It has a ginger rusted gin. And um, in this case, we're using... Tanqueray Rangpur, which is a gin that has Rangpur lime. So it has mm. this this little citrus element to it that we kind of... But very floral, right? It's yes. Not just, um, right, not yes. just lime, but Mm-mm. it's flower, yes, flowery. Exactly, mm. uh, with the ginger. So we kind of whip that up and let it sit for a couple days. Um, so the flavors really combine. And then we mix it with green chartreuse, hmm. lime juice... And orgia, which is an almond syrup with orange flower water. And we shake it with some basil leaves. Wow. That sounds delicious. <laughs> what what color is it? It's like a light green color. Yeah. Light green. We serve it on the rocks. Um, is there a garnish? Uh, we garnish it with a cucumber. Yeah. Not a little umbrella. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although you may want to drink it at the beach. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah. But this is your spin on it. This is your kind of... With- yeah, yeah. It's essentially the same cocktail. I think we're presenting it in a little bit of a different a different fashion than they do at Blue Water Cafe. But it, it's really their recipe. And it's something that's been on their menu for a long time. Been very successful there. So it's kind of like our little nod to them. And uh, it's, so far, it's, it's working out quite well. How do you feel about people who drink cocktails with their main courses or during their meal i mean if that's what if that's what you like you know um it, it's it's that's all what, that's yeah. what you like yeah that's what you like you know what i mean i don't, i don't take offense to it um well that one in particular feels very food friendly mm-hmm. it really does for all kinds of reasons absolutely right? and you can have it before dinner or after dinner mm. or with like you know a hamachi sashimi or something yeah. with a little bit of spice to it i think it it goes well with a lot of the items that are menu actually wonderful yeah. julie i'm still looking for an after dinner drink i don't know what to drink hmm. after i haven't found my you haven't groove found your yet thing. there do you have one yeah um i really like amaro mm. um there's an Amaro called Braulio, which I'm a huge fan of, and I just like it um, with a with one ice cube. It just like opens it up just a little bit. But for me, that works as a digestif. Yes, it's my go-to. Thank you. I think I'll try that next time I come to Oceans. Absolutely. After I try that cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Julie, this has really been great. I do have a question that I ask all my guests. 
What does one woman kitchen mean to you? I think it's really about having, you know, the the freedom to be creative in a sense and um, having the the confidence to make decisions, whether they're right or wrong, you know, experiment and really learn from, you know, what works, what doesn't work, um, you know, whether it be a pairing or a pricing, you know, whatever that means um, for for wine and for food pairings. But, um, you know, really just experimenting and being brave enough to to learn from your mistakes and then being able to share it with people, I think having that community and passing along your knowledge and your experience and the things that you think are really exciting with your team and your guests or your family and friends, you know, being able to open that bottle of wine and talk about it and share it with people. It's it's just the best. That is so wonderful. And you are making this field so appealing. <laughs> um, so after hearing this, I can see there may be many women out there who want to <laughs> run and learn more about wine and maybe think about this as a fantastic career path for them. Uh, we didn't get really a chance to talk about women winemakers, mm-hmm. but this is also something that's become a great reality in, in the world. And I think there's a sensitivity and uh, a different uh, value system that women winemakers uh, add to the craft. Mm-hmm. Do you have some favorites or? Yeah, you know, there's people out there who are really changing the culture of wine um, because there's areas of the world that have traditionally had only male winemakers. They get passed down from father to son and father to son through generations. And now you're seeing more women um, in those roles, whether they've, you know, it's been passed down to them or they've gone after it. Um, but there's a wine on my list actually that's, um, made by a woman, um, in Bulgari. It's the super Tuscan we have on our list and it's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot. Um, the winery is called Setta di Cialli and it's up in the hillside of Bulgari and very high up actually, one of the highest elevated vineyards in Bulgari. And, um, it's delicious. We serve it by the glass and I've been fortunate enough to go there and visit with her. And she's just this little powerhouse and she's so (laughs) passionate about the vines and, you know, the growing, she's out there farming the fields herself, you know, and she follows through from the very beginning to the very end. She does everything along the way. And, um, I really believe in in her and people like her who are who are so passionate about what they do, and I'm really happy to have that wine, which is called Yantra. It's the the special cuvee that we serve um, on our list by the glass at Oceans. Julie, thank you, and thank you for your passion about the whole world of wine. It's really very exciting. How can people get in touch with you? Um, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Julie VZ or through Oceans, which is at Oceans New York spelled out. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening to me and Julie today, talking wine (laughs) on One Woman Kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.